Money FM 89.3, best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. So we started the day off looking at comments from U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell. He's warning that the current economic downturn could turn into a deep and prolonged recession. U.S. Congress has already allocated three trillion U.S. dollars for relief and fiscal stimulus. Powell says more spending is needed. So today we're going to take a step back and ask: you know, if we see more spending, is it going to lead to an environment where things are going to head towards deflation? or inflation. Also, we'll take a look at those negative interest rates, that suggestion from Trump. What does this mean for traders? Negative interest rate environment. Not that that's happening because uh, Jerome Powell said that is not going to happen, at least not now. But what would a negative interest rate environment mean for the trader? That is among the questions that I'm going to be putting to Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Good morning, Arun. How are you? Good morning, Michelle. I'm good. How are you? I am doing really well. So let's start with this big picture question about where we're heading to. You're reading easy money from central banks and stimulus plans from the governments. They've propped up the markets and many market watchers are fretting about the potential risks of inflation. But we do have new data out that shows prices are actually falling and not rising. Core prices in the U.S. had their biggest drop in April since the 1950s. So where do you sit on the debate, deflation or inflation? What are we heading for? <laughs> you know, so if I go back to like 2006 when I started out my investment banking career. And I was told at that point of time that 14 years uh, in the future, uh, there will be trillions of dollars of debt issued by governments. Interest rates will basically be zero, uh, you know, for more than half the countries in the world for nearly a decade but there will be no inflation, I would have called, you know, that's absolutely just not possible, right? It would be shocking. But that's exactly the situation that we're in. And I think that's primarily for uh, three main reasons. Mm-hmm. Firstly, you have China, right? The way that they have managed to expand their uh, manufacturing setup in an extremely low-cost manner and provided those savings to uh, the world, has been one of the instrumental factors leading to, uh, you know, no price increases. Second is the gig economy, uh, where we've been, through the, through the fact that we've been able to provide a lot of services with existing resources, mm-hmm. take it your Airbnbs, your Ubers, that's ensured a cap on, be it hospitality or for that matter, transportation. And the third big factor, I would say, is technology, mm. which I would like to further segregate into two parts. One is true disruption, right? Stuff like, say, the way Amazon has managed its supply chain, the way Walmart has, using really smooth uh, UX, UI apps to ensure uh, not just the customer benefits, but keeping costs extremely low with really sophisticated back-end B2B ERP systems, etc. And then you have your VC-subsidized living, right? Where there were a couple of months, I think, when I was living in Singapore, where I did not pay a dollar for my transport, for laundry, even like my food was subsidized by 75% because all these startups had come along, subsidized by venture capital money, providing basically free services. But now, we're, now obviously, we are dealing with the COVID situation, right? Where we have seen 
some of the greatest demand destruction that has ever occurred in the past, you know, a hundred years. And that's led to massive deflationary uh, features, like exactly like the numbers that you were highlighting. But just, so when I'm looking at it, looking at this as an investor, mm. not necessarily in like the really short term, not, not in like the one month, three month, maybe even the six month space, mm-hmm. there is something to be a little bit more concerned about because you cannot have a world economy that has printed so much money. Interest rates are basically zero in not just the developed economies, but you have emerging markets, uh, Brazil, Peru, that are inching closer towards zero interest rates because there just is no growth. What will that lead to in like two to five years from now? And if inflation starts spiraling out of control, uh, then obviously equity prices get affected a lot only after the fact that government bond prices or like fixed income in general will take the massive hit too. And that could lead to many spiraling effects. So while it's something not to be too concerned about in the very near future, I think it's something to be extremely be concerned about for the more medium to long-term investors. Okay, so if um, given interest rates are near zero, the next possible scenario, U.S. President Donald Trump has tweeted about this, is that the U.S. should accept the gift, he calls it, of negative interest rates. Now, we know that <laughs> Japan has tried this. We know it's not a panacea for, uh, you know, kickstarting a growth cycle. And the Fed has said, has come out, Jerome Powell, and said this is not likely to happen. But does cutting rates make sense or, you know, getting to negative interest rates? You know, like Trump is going to do anything to try and juice up the economy, especially before November, right? And uh, you know, he does not want to be the one that's taking away the punch bowl that's led to a massive uh, asset price bubble, dare I call it, in both the equity and the bond space, given what the Fed has done. If you listen to Powell's uh, speech yesterday, like, as you were highlighting earlier on, you know, he clearly says that a lot more measures need to be taken. Uh, $3 trillion check. Uh, another $3 trillion is passing through the House, which it hopefully should be approved, given the fact that it's uh, a majority by the Democrats. But it'll be interesting to see on Friday, I believe, whether this will be passed by the House or not, which is more uh, a Republican uh, majority uh, state. The issue, though, is what does the Fed do now? They have basically dropped interest rates to zero. They have gone in and not just bought investment-grade bonds. They've gone and said that they're going to be buying high-yield loans and bonds also. Maybe even like on the equity space, the way BOJ has done it. Yet growth has not come back because this is a situation that is unprecedented. You know, the unemployment rate is close to 15% in the U.S. with 20 million jobs lost over the course of two months. Jobs that took over a decade to be created to begin with. And hence, you're left with very, very few options. Now, does interest rates going negative actually help in this case? Personally, I don't think so. But that being said, what does the Fed do? And I, the, the, the fearful thing, I think, is, or the scary thing, is that even Powell doesn't have an answer to that. And it's more of a wait-and-see approach with fingers crossed and a hope that uh, the world can recover relatively quickly from this pandemic. 
Okay. Can you walk us back, though? I mean, what does negative interest rates really mean? I mean, does this mean that the government is going to be able to issue bonds and negative yields and make money off them? It's kind of mind-blowing, right? Like yeah, it really just, is. Just the thought of that, because <laughs> everyone in finance has led with the fact that, you know, uh, money right now, vis-a-vis in the future, mm. is the whole interest rate differential, right? Like, it just makes intuitive sense that where you'd rather have money right now than in the future in, in in exchange for that you should be paid a certain amount of interest to compensate you for that when you get into negative interest rates uh and something that ecb europe has toyed with a lot is basically trying to force a saver which is uh, you know people who worked hard to earn a certain living or banks that are willing to take those deposits and giving it to the central bank mm. If you give me this money, I will actually give you less money in the future, which basically will lead to either banks or uh, savers uh, sitting in printing cash and keeping that money underneath your bed. But that obviously has a whole host of other issues in terms of safety and whether, uh, you know, those notes will even exist in the future, uh, all sorts of other safety angles to it. Or you would take that money and basically go out and spend it. And that's the purpose of trying to ensure neg- or trying to create a negative interest rate environment where people will just take that money and either spend it or they will loan it out. Mm. But whether that will actually work or not, it, it, it's a double-edged sword. Because if I think, you know, the fact that people are going into negative interest rates will potentially make me a lot more fearful and I, be, and I as mm. a potentially conservative saver, mm. will be willing to take the hit of a negative 50 basis points, like which is minus 0.5% in a year, I would rather do that as compared to potentially lending out the money to pretty much anyone across the board and potentially having a loss of capital. So, you know, the, the actual effects of negative interest rates have never been studied because it's never been happening in the world for uh, since uh, time immemorial until the last about like 10 years since the global financial crisis. Yeah, the Fed can do a lot, but it can't do everything. That's what I read someone say in response to this whole idea about negative interest rates. All right, let's talk about semiconductors. Uh, this is a follow-on from a show that I did yesterday where we looked at the rivalry between U.S. and China in this space. And it's an important space to, to keep a watch on because these semiconductors are, are driving the central nervous system of everything from Internet of Things to 5G to wireless to artificial intelligence. And, you know, investors want to know, OK, should I look at Texas Instruments, Intel, Samsung, NVIDIA or a, a semiconductor EDF. So in light of U.S. and China rivalries, they say the Cold War is getting colder. And since semiconductors are at the heart of this, what do you think investors should know about this space? So as you rightfully mentioned, right, it's a red hot market. And if you looked at the results of uh, Texas Instruments, ST Microelectronics, Intel, NXP, you name it, across the board in the U.S. and for that matter, closer to home, UMF, AEM. Their stock prices have done phenomenally well, especially the ones at home. Like UMS is now trading at close to a dollar. AEM has nearly doubled from its lows of about a dollar fifty in terms of Singapore dollars. You've got companies like BYD, uh, you know, the electric car manufacturer that uh, Warren Buffett is, has invested a chunk of money in. They are looking to spin off their semiconductor unit and uh, IPO it. 
to take advantage of this uh, red hot market. It's it makes a lot of sense, right? Like while in the short term there are a couple of issues affecting uh, that space. You have supply chains, just like you know any other manufacturing outlet. Because of this COVID crisis, you have various supply chain issues. And, of course, you have a rapid drop in car sales as well as phone sales. Uh, but in, to, to counter that effect, the, the terms that you were mentioning, like AI, 5G, uh, the number of laptops that are being sold because of the fact that a lot of large employers are providing those uh, laptops to employees to work from home. Like Google is finding it difficult to find enough laptops for their uh, employees. Wow. And you obviously have uh, gaming people, right? Like, mm. and I'll be one of those guilty as charged where you're working from home, you know, take a break for an hour or half an hour and uh, get a quick game in, right? <laughs> so you have a lot of tailwinds for the semiconductor space. And another one big advantage is these guys have like very long R&D cycles. It's not like every month or every two weeks, you need to come up with some kind of an update on your software. A lot of analysis and due diligence is done, and then they come out with a chip that hopefully is gonna be the market standard for the next couple of years. So you've seen semiconductors take a lot of advantage to this by sitting and continuing to try and produce as much as they can during this COVID crisis knowing fully well that there is going to be a massive demand as and when the economy starts opening up, as and when telcos start going a lot more into 5G, uh, the AI space, uh, more higher-end laptops, be it for working from home or gaming or you name it. So it makes a lot of sense. In terms of the other fact that you brought up about China versus the U.S., and you know we talked about it in the past also, it's a very difficult thing to try and evaluate right now. Uh, dare I say, the U.S. having a lot more of social capital dollars across the world, and by that what I mean is a, a lot more countries will be, I think, a lot more comfortable following U.S. global standards, purely because that's what's been happening for the past 40 or 60 years. It might make more sense to put a little bit more money uh, on that side of the table, but you can't not be invested in China, right? Like it is going to be the growth story for the next, like for our lifetime. So it just makes sense to, you know, balance your bets and invest on both horses. Speaking of China, KGI has issued a research note saying that they're bullish on Capital Land Retail China Trust because they think that China's retail sector is recovering. So, but then even... Even though they think the stock will outperform, they've lowered the target price to a dollar fifty-four. But on the broader note of you know this uh, this trust um, riding on the back of China's retail sector moving up, is this a case of first in, first out? What do you think? <laughs> you know, like hindsight is twenty twenty, and I swear I was talking about this stock with my friends when it was trading sub one dollar. Oh wow! But, oh well, it's what it is, right? And now <laughs> it's like at about uh, close to a dollar thirty or something. Yes, a dollar thirty. Look, I mean, uh, based on conventional metrics, uh, P ratio, uh, single digits. It's, I think it's something like about eight PE. Price to book less than one. Uh, headline dividend yield eight percent. It looks to be a very attractive proposition. And also you have the fact that the bottom line is that China seems to have gotten a control of the virus a lot better than many other countries. But the end of the day, the longer term impact of 
how COVID will change the consumer psyche in, you know, will they be going to a mall? Will they rather be going down the path of purely e-commerce, which was already a massive trend in the past 10 to 20 years or 10 to 15 years, I would say. Uh, will that continue unabated, thereby leading to even uh, less of a need for malls, especially in, you know, the extremely high-end tier one cities of Beijing, Shanghai, where it is extremely expensive in terms of uh, land PFS prices. If you look at the U.S., the number of bankruptcies that have taken place, mm-hmm. JCPenney, Neiman Marcus, and I'm sure, you know, a whole host of more to come. But rather than focusing on just, and Sears, but rather than focusing on the big names, the smaller ones, the smaller players who are a lot more vulnerable uh, to their cash flow drying up over the past two to three months when their top line has basically gone to zero, will they be willing to foot the bill of having a retail space, not knowing that the customers will come to them, or would they rather you know, use so many e-commerce softwares out there. I mean, look at Shopify's stock price, right? It's ridiculous. And that coupled with, uh, you know, you have so many avenues for digital advertising, like your Google's, Facebook's of the world, which has made it literally, you can set up your e-commerce store in like five clicks. Would they rather be doing that and taking a much more conservative approach vis-a-vis them not even knowing whether consumers will actually show up to a mall or not? I think time will obviously tell, but uh, personally, it might make more sense to play from a more conservative angle. And yes, the valuation is definitely attractive. China has gotten a hold of the economy, uh, but I, it would still be, uh, I, I would still need to see true numbers of a lot more foot traffic in malls before I could be more comfortable in investing in the stock. Well, I had to check out Shopify's uh, stock price at $754.38. Wow. Okay, speaking of things changing, uh, you know, pe- people are realizing that, you know, uh, some people don't have to be at work for work to continue. And Twitter is announcing that employees will be able to work from home forever. So this calls into question whether or not we're going to need office space. Companies across the tech industry weighing how to manage their offices in the coming months. Google and Facebook extending their work from home policies to 2021. Amazon extending its work from home policy until at least early October. So what do you think? Does this have ramifications on, you know, commercial buildings and and land prices and the lot? I think it will be, right? Like the last topic, we only talked about uh, the retail REIT, but I think REITs across the board, uh, especially for the uh, office space REIT, it will be a big question mark. I talked to a number of uh, business owners in Singapore, Mm. and sure, the first couple of weeks, uh, it was a lot more difficult to ensure productivity being maintained from working from home. But then everyone got a hang of it, Right. Uh, you started using all these business productivity softwares, these video conferencing softwares that led to people not having to waste anywhere from an, from half an hour to an hour. And, and that's in countries as blessed as we are in Singapore, right? Like I, I talked to a couple of uh, my colleagues in Indonesia. Uh-huh. It takes them literally two hours oh, one gosh. way to get from home to the office. Mm. And so, sure, will they be playing video games for an hour or two hours in the middle of the day? Maybe. But do they save four hours of uh, transportation? 
Most definitely, yes. So net-net to the employer, does it become more beneficial? I think so. I think the, like now, obviously, uh, that being said, it's not going to go into a pure work-from-home environment. But I do think it will be some kind of a hybrid mix where you realize that you might not need this massive an office space to begin with. Uh, you can have, uh, you, can, you can control the costs of that a little bit more, ensure that people come into work when it's a little bit more essential to obviously have that face-to-face connectivity, that camaraderie, which will only happen, you know, when you're in the same room or in the same vicinity and working together. Mm. So while that is required, you know, you, you, we all have read horror stories of uh, you know, cases of, you know, sitting next to each other from like eight to six or eight to seven and just getting so annoyed at your office colleagues that it becomes detrimental to your uh, work productivity. Yeah. So I, my personal take is I think it's going to be some kind of a hybrid. And we've already seen that taking place for a number of companies. They've decided to not extend their leases. Uh, Twitter is obviously, you know, far out there saying for the rest of your life, you can potentially work from home. Uh, but then again, he was going to be moving to Africa permanently too, right? So you, you've got some really interesting CEOs of Jack Dorsey as well as uh, Elon Musk. But maybe that's a topic for some other time. But, uh, you know, a, a lot of companies. It, it, it just makes sense. It, it just makes at the end of the day, if it makes sense to a company yeah. uh, in terms of their bottom line, I yeah. think they will institute it. Yeah. And this seems to be one of those cases. It's definitely accelerated a change. You know, it's taken the clock watchers, uh, the people who used to think you have to clock in and clock out. It's, it's, it's accelerated this whole change from lip service to actually realizing that it can work and it can work well. Okay, let's let's talk about what's on your stock to watch list, Arun. Um. I'm taking a little bit more of a careful approach, Mm. which led me to missing out on uh, a decent part of the rally, I would say. Uh, Not that I'm too perturbed about it, because I still fundamentally believe that at current valuations, and one of the indicators that Warren Buffett talks about a lot is uh, GDP over uh, the market cap of the entire index. Well, in the U.S.'s case, S&P 500 and the U.S. GDP. And that's trading at multiples that we have never seen before, including uh, the 1999 bubble, uh, pre-global financial crisis bubble. So there are stuff that is extremely frothy, and that's obviously been led by, you know, your five big tech giants. And sure, have they led to a lot of productivity increases? Have they managed to, uh, you know, beat capitalism at its game to a large extent? Yes and they've got phenomenal growth numbers to prove it. But at the end of the day, you know, valuation is valuation. And as a value investor, I personally find the markets extremely frothy right now. And from a risk-reward basis, given the fact that it's 15% unemployment in the U.S., potentially 20%, a complete cluelessness of what the actual after-effects of this pandemic will be for massive sectors, hospitality, tourism, uh, the automobile industry, uh, the gig economy, it, it seems to be priced to perfection. And yes, you know, the Fed is there. They've obviously backstopped a lot of stuff. And would the markets or should the markets have rallied from, uh, you know, mid-March? Absolutely. To the extent that they've rallied, I'm a bit surprised. So I'm taking a little bit more of a conservative approach. 
in, in a weird contrarian play, I still do like very select few banks in the U.S. and Singapore. Uh, I think Disney is one stock that is extremely interesting, uh, priced at a decent valuation. Uh, Amazon, Google, don't take me wrong, I love the companies, but they just, again, priced to perfection. Uh, other software companies, it's just too risky for a value investor to get into. I've kind of pivoted away from uh, oil tankers, uh, taking a decent amount of profit off the table over there, and gone into the product tanker space for a couple of uh, you know esoteric reasons, which I can go into details later on. But yeah, that's roughly how my portfolio is structured. And I'm taking advantage of this short-term volatility and actually selling short-dated put options, uh, not on a leveraged basis, uh, on stocks that I'm comfortable buying, I'm happy to sell short-dated put options to take advantage of receiving the premium. And I notice uh, we had to change the way we address you. You're now Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Name of the company has changed. And hey, congrats on your $6 million funding. I have 30 seconds on the clock, but share with us what this means for your company, Flow. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, it's obviously been an extremely difficult time. What we are at Flow is an ethical uh, credit management company. And the reason we raise this capital and we're embarking on our rec- next round soon after is to try and help lenders, which are basically banks, MFIs, fintech companies, assist them in managing their non-performing loan uh, assets. Uh, we do that through two, through two services either outsourcing or actually purchasing these debts from these lenders. And so obviously it's an extremely interesting time given that they are sadly suffering right now. We hope to be uh, their partner and uh, help them achieve them through this crisis. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'll let you get back to those games then. Hey, Arun. Thank you. Aaron Pies, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow and Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.